Hello, everyone, and welcome to the King's Court Podcast. As always, I'm your host, King Rashad. And on today's episode, I asked my friend and fellow historian, Britton Gufterson, to step into the court and to talk about the developments in the current Russo-Ukraine conflict, as well as give our opinions on how we think the war will end and what victory means for either side. And with that, this court is now in session. All right, and the episode is now live. Okay, so the war in Ukraine. Um, today, coming at you guys, well, this is being recorded on January 26, uh, 2023. We have a new development. We have Germany, and they have agreed to let all other countries send Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. So I'm joined with Britain. Uh, how do you think this is going to affect the current war in Ukraine? Well, I think the imported tanks from Germany and other allies are going to be crucial in Ukraine's offensive that they hope to launch this spring in order to repel the remaining areas under Russian occupation and to turn from a defensive to an offensive and hopefully be a turning point to the war and uh, hopefully bring it to conclusion. But we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to see. And as well as the Leopard 2 tanks, the, I just mentioned those because those were the highly requested ones. It seems Germany only made this decision because America agreed to send our tanks over as well, which run on a different kind of fuel, if I'm correct. So they said this will like have a bunch of logistical problems. But overall, it's great. Zelensky's prayers have been answered. Uh, he's been begging for these tanks. They said for 10 months now. <laughs> so he's finally got them. And so now the pressure is on France to deliver to their tanks as well. So Yeah, and it's, you know, Ukra- Zelensky and Ukraine have really pushed for more offensive military weapons and stuff. And I don't, a lot of people don't realize how huge it is that Germany is actually sending military supplies and the EU, but specifically yeah. Germany, because yeah. they've always not allowed to, to be able to send military supplies for decades since the end of World War II, but they changed their rule for Ukraine. And that is a huge turning point in European geopolitics. Yeah, because, like, German, like, heavy weaponry and stuff like that hasn't been on the Eastern Front since World War II. So this is a really big development, and I'm just really glad um, Schultz made this decision. You actually texted me um, the day yesterday when it happened, and we were talking about him seceding Angela Merkel and him being a great uh, German chancellor. I think this was a great decision. Um, you know, even despite this decision, there were still talks about Poland and Turkey and other countries like sending um, their Leopard 2 tanks that they have anyway yeah. without German help. But, you know, now that they have German uh, backing, and I think Schultz said he's working on sending a battalion or two over. Um, uh, batch of tanks. I think this is a great um, way of helping Ukraine, and it'll lead, like you said, they want to go on an offensive, and I think their offensive is going to be focused on Crimea, and I think that's the key to winning. So now that we see that Ukraine has a chance, I just want to talk about how shocking that is because <laughs> if you would have told me, like this whole situation, if you would have told me like a year ago that there would be a war in Europe, I would have looked at you like you were crazy. You know, I, I always knew and said that it wasn't going to be, um, I don't think Russia was going to be dumb enough to attack a NATO ally because, you know, that would mean nuclear war. We probably ought to be dead. But, um, so yeah, I'm just very uh, shocked and. I don't know what victory, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what he's like going to get now. So I just, I'm kind of scared. So my question to you, Brandon, is like, 
how do you think Putin's going to like spin this? Like, how do you think, do you think victory is possible basically for Russia in any kind of sense? I thought victory for Russia was going to happen when the war started because I, like many others thought that Russia was going to trample over Ukraine. You know, Russia is supposed to be the supposedly the second strongest military in the world and a huge supplier of military arms and, and a huge military. And Ukraine is, you know, roughly the same population as Canada and has, uh, you know, has old weapons from the Soviet times and, but has received us and European uh, supplies since 2014 with uh, Crimea's annexation. But the fact that, you know, I, I always said the reason why Ukraine has been able to hold off and really, hold its own is yes, from uh, Euro American support, but also morale because the Ukrainian people want to remain a sovereign, free and democratic nation to guide their own destiny. They don't want to be under Russian occupation or division. And so they put all their might and under a brave leader to defend their country. And let's talk about that. I think it's very interesting that you brought him up because a part of the reason why I think the morale so high is because Zelensky didn't flee. Exactly. Um, the capital when he when, at the beginning of the war, and also you know this whole thing with Putin and this message of why he started the war, where he he, he sees Russia and Ukraine as uh, the same people. Um, you know they both share a history going back to the uh, Kievan Rus uh, in that area and stuff, and which is just absurd because if yeah. we use that mentality, um, there was a really great speech at the United Nations when they were making votes against Russia. The uh, um, a foreign uh, well. A government representative for Kenya actually came up and gave a speech denouncing Russia for their invasion and said mm-hmm. that if Africa were to apply the Russian mentality of, oh, well, these people are ours, so we deserve to have that territory, it would erupt into complete chaos. Exactly. The modern world cannot have that mentality, and it's outdated. And the Ukrainian people are not Russians. Uh, Sure, they're Slavic languages, but they are separate peoples, and they want to guide their own destiny. The vast majority of Ukrainians want to remain an independent country. And with back to the morale thing, is that uh, you know the opposite is in Russia. Russians um, have low morale. I mean, Russian men are fleeing to other countries; they don't want to fight, and Putin it's extremely these, unpopular. These, uh, Putin in these drafts, uh, yeah. the, the calling up, you know, what was supposed to be a special, like I said again, this special military operation, which we know is a war, but that's what he's claiming uh, in Russia is like now um, they're drafting uh, more people. And even as of today, as of this video, I think there there's rumors that he's going to have to draft again because uh, Russia is trying to do their own offensive. So, uh, yeah, the morale protests are being shut down in Russia. Right. Uh, people are being jailed for 15 year plus sentences. Um, or the um, another thing to consider is the youth of Russia that were born, you know, since 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed, have enjoyed all these products, companies, and entertainment from European and American companies, Japanese companies, you know, Nintendo, Sony, Nike, uh, Universal, Disney, McDonald's—all these companies that many Russians know and and live around and consume—pulled out of the country due to the invasion. And you know, young Russians and the Russian people are you know very upset about that, yeah. and that's created this sort of like uh, antagonism against Putin because 
you know, many Russians put up with Putin through the economic growth that he created for the country when he first came to power. But now that there's been that slowdown and those pull out of uh, European, Japanese and, you know, American companies, they're starting to doubt that. So yeah. I think that's another thing to consider. And, and I just, like, I just don't understand. Not I don't understand. It's just, I don't see any way like Putin can win because he keeps changing the narrative. Like the first he, he went in there because apparently he wanted to stop the, the neo-Nazis that were controlling Ukraine. Okay. Even though president Zelensky is Jewish. I don't know if everybody who's listening knows that, but he's a Jew. So and his first language is Russian. Okay. Zelensky's first language is Russian. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't understand that. Then he, um, says that, uh, once you know that was before the war uh commenced. Now, once the war commenced and Ukraine's doing good, then he tried to illegally annex um the uh regions of U- the Donbass regions of Ukraine and oh, Donetsk and Luhansk. Yeah, recognize right. the, the separatists as actual yeah. sovereign and countries. He, but my thing is, he did that without the Russians even being fully controlled of those areas. Yeah. So, like, okay, so now the Ukrainian offensive went really well. The winter offensive went extremely well to the point where they're almost near the Russian border. So now he's changing it again. And now he's focusing it mostly on the West. And he's saying that this is a proxy war and between America and Russia and how America's imperialist. And that's what they're fighting for. So he keeps changing the narrative as the situation goes forward. So my question to you is like now with the looming possibility with them getting these tanks that Ukraine claims they desperately need um and they have the ability to do this offensive once they you know do training with the tanks and everything and all the equipment that they're getting if they're able to successfully pull off an offensive what's going to be like putin's new narrative and like how is he going to react this time well putin will do what he always does uh whenever he sees anything that europe or the u.s does as a threat or an incursion on russia's spheres of influence and threaten, you know, he'll threaten or say he'll up the violence or he'll uh, say that he'll, he'll um, counter whatever the European Union, NATO or the United States is doing. But every time he has said that in the past, he doesn't really do anything. Yeah. I mean, look at how, how NATO has practically absorbed nearly all of the former Eastern Bloc in Europe. Yeah. And soon enough. Former Yugoslavia will be absorbed as well. Yeah. Well, they were not. Well, well, yeah, we'll, but, get, we'll get to Serbia. Yeah, but it's like, I, I don't think yeah. it's going to be. Well, well, yeah. So I think he will increase his threats and say he'll do something, but I don't think he'll really do anything. If he does, he may try to pull more troops and launch more of an offensive, more military stuff. But there's really how effective that's going to be is to say, and uh, whether or not Russians will put up with it is another thing. And, uh, Divisions with the, with the, um, even within the own Russian regime, whereas uh, I forget his name, but there's a man within the Russian elite that is getting a lot of support amongst yeah. the Russian government along with they have the, he has his own militia and he could possibly secede. Yeah. And, and, I, and that's a great segue. And what else I want to talk about um, with you is like Putin's chance to be overthrown. I know people have been saying that. Um, like, what do you think is the possibility of it? And, like, you know, do you think there's any, like, validity to it? Well, now the man I'm speaking of is not um, Alexis, Alexei Navalny, I yeah. believe his name is, who is the uh, anti-Putin, pro-European, um, pro-democracy uh, 
human uh, rights fighter. This man, I can't remember his name, would be f- further into the the elite, the oligarchy, the Russian government, um, and seen as capable to take over from Putin. I think he is more likely to be able to overthrow Putin and take control of the Russian government. Navalny, much less so, because he would have to rely on significant European and American support, which with trying to change the regime in Russia, that's that would be very risky for Europe and America. So I guess for Navalny, it's not very likely, but for the other man who has a name, I can't remember, I think there's a higher chance. But Putin is constantly guarded by, I think, what, hundreds of guards? Yeah, and- yeah. It's, it's going to be a real hard thing. But, you know, I've only, you know, I've only known Russia now to be under Putin. So it's like, I, I, right. I, I've, I've kind of struggled to even fathom what a new Russia was like. And a lot of Russians, too. I mean, a lot of the youth our age, they've only known Putin. I mean, I was born in 2001. I mean, briefly from 2008 to 12 when Medvedev, Medvedev, I can't Dmitry Medvedev was president, president yeah. and who, which Putin was his prime, prime minister, minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, which basically, basically a puppet. Putin. Yeah, basically. Um, you know, it's hard to consider, but I mean, we have to. Because, yeah. you know, Putin's an old – getting up there in age, yeah. and he can't rule the country forever. And what would happen if he died? Or what yeah. would happen if he fled? Or I think – yeah, like me personally, like, I just believe the odds of Putin getting overthrown are just very um, – I, I don't want to say likely, but it's just, I just don't see how he comes back from this. Because everything he's literally tried, as I said before, has failed. Like – the changing of the narrative, Phil, um, him uh, with the whole uh, we're going to shut off Europe's gas and stuff like that. That didn't work. I find it ironic that they had a, a, a warm winter. <laughs> or did you know about the, the Russian gas and oil? Uh, the EU completely made a plan mm-hmm. to be 100 percent free of Russian natural gas right. and oil by 2027. That's exactly. four years away. Right. They won't even be reliant on it anymore. Exactly. Even countries that are super reliant on it, like Germany. And, and you know, Putin, Putin knows he's, this is the end game. Yeah. And when that happens to dictators, they become, un, un, you know, uh, unstable and they make rash decisions that are very hard to predict. So this could be very dangerous. Yeah. But and, and he was counting on, you know, along with the gas thing failing, he was counting on uh, political upheasion. In those countries, which, you know, a little bit of that happened a little bit in Hungary. I know in France uh, with the whole Macron elections and stuff, it, it actually helped Macron win, I think, because uh, one of the things against Le Pen uh, was that she had done dealings with Putin. So that actually didn't go uh, well in his favor at all. Um, yeah, it's just so the political situation is not working. He's losing ally to China. One of his, you know, closest allies that he relies on is like really hesitant to take his side in the whole war and the whole thing. Um, well, it's also uh, what he set out to do, and his whole goal it has backfired and actually aided his enemies. I mean, Europe and I'm sorry, the European Union and NATO just signed their third agreement together on working together and and making closer cooperation. The decades-long neutrality policies of Finland and Sweden are now Now over. Practically. Right. Now they're applying to join NATO. And the only thing stopping them is Erdogan and and Turkey. Which is is not as significant as 
which but, will but, not be an big issue. Yeah, They'll but, be in it. But even Turkey, even like Turkey is closing the Bosphorus Strait. And Russia. they've sent out uh, Turkey and Italy have sent out tons of warships to monitor the Mediterranean and the Black Sea and to stop Russian ships from trying to access their ports and stuff. And now with uh, Georgia, which uh, Russia invaded in 2008, has become an anti-Russia, pro-Europe country, they're trying to join NATO. And if if they do, which is possible in the near future, the entire Black Sea is NATO members, and so will the North Sea as well. If Ukraine becomes a member. Um, Oh, that's true. Uh, Well, I mean, yeah, that's true. You're right. Ukraine and the rest of it would be NATO members, which is not a good situation for Russia well, and I mean, it's backfired. Yeah, and and Putin has only himself. To oh, blame. and the U- Ukraine wants to join NATO too. That's what I meant. Like if Ukraine yeah. and Georgia would join, in order for Ukraine to join NATO, they'll have to win this war first. They'd have and, to not be at war. Yeah, yeah. because you know the United States that's just begging you can't for a nuclear conflict. Yeah, so yeah, that's Putin only has to himself to blame. It's. Well, I think it's you know it's not only him; it's it's his party and his oligarchy that you know they get they get wealthy off of these these uh his sort of talking points and his actions and yeah. his way of running Russia and you know all these Russian oligarchs yachts and property being seized across Europe and the world and their assets being lost and sold and freezed i mean the yeah, oligarchy like I th- yeah i don't think putin was expecting the sanctions that we Hit him with. They and hit then, this hard. You know, the oligarchy is going to turn against him, and some of them have. I mean, there was a Russian oligarch who, air quotes, committed suicide by falling multiple stories from a hospital. Was it suicide, <laughs> or he accidentally fell? It was suicide. Yeah, accidentally <laughs> fell from stories of a hospital. Yeah, sure, because everyone accidentally falls out of a hospital window. Yeah, very but, suspicious. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if his own people, if once the you know oligarchy of Russia stops supporting him, it's over for him, and he knows that this is the end game, and. And, you know, they try to push a narrative that, oh, the Russian economy has been resilient and the ruble hasn't crashed and all this kind of... Oh, oh, man, shoot, the ruble, I, I think it was the the craziest thing I've ever seen almost in my life was when literally he invaded in February, almost coming up uh, to the day of last year in 2022. The ruble, if you if you looked like just on a Google search and tried to see the U the uh, ruble to the U.S. dollar, the like the exchange rate, right, plummeted yes. like in a day. It was it was really no. I something. think for I've never seen that the anymore. European Union and NATO, Russia's economy has been res- more resilient than they had expected, and the ruble has sort of recovered since that initial plummet. But it is still Again, still fragile, yeah. and Russia's economy is you know fuel dependent, not as complex. Uh, as uh, the Europe and Americas, and that plays a significant key. And, and then when you have key areas of Russian influence, like Central Asia, who are starting to distance themselves from Russia, I mean, this has just been a disaster. And yeah. and it shows, and it has showed the world that Russia's military is not as mighty as yeah, it's yeah, been it as everyone thought it yeah, was. Like you said earlier, yeah, it was supposed to be the second. Best military yeah. in the world. And it's like, if so, a very, very distant <laughs> <A> second. second. <laughs> very, very distant. So now, you know, we talked about Russia. We talked about the war. We talked about what it means if Ukraine wins the war and what could possibly happen for Putin. But now I want to talk about a little bit. And, you know, we've been pulling in and out. But how has the rest of the world been affected 
by this. And right. I know, Britain, you're an expert on Africa. So how, like, you know, we'll, we'll get back to Europe and we'll, we'll just, uh, we'll leave Europe for a while. Let's just go to Africa for a second. How have they taken it? Because I know um, at the time shooting this video on the 23rd of January, I mean, the 26th of January, I'm sorry, um, episode, uh, South Africa recently hosted a Russian ambassador to, you know, their country. So I just, you know, I want to know, like, the situation there, like, you know, how has it been? Yeah, so I a lot of people are wondering why so many African and Asian countries won't take a stance on the Russo-Ukraine war and why they haven't said much. And I think a lot of people think are like don't understand why, but really if you have to understand it comes back to what are their needs. And Ukraine and Russia are major breadbaskets for the entire world, mm-hmm. especially African and Asian countries. Yeah. And especially Ukraine being that breadbasket. Yes, the, yes. the wheat Ukraine's, of Ukraine. Uh, I don't know if people know this, but Ukraine's flag, its symbolism is the blue is the blue sky and the and the yellow is the fields, the grain fields. And when you're top five producers of grain and corn and these early other crops and you feed and some countries that are so reliant on these crops, such as Egypt or uh, other countries across the world, it's like you can't risk to take a stance on the war because then you could feel retaliation from Russia and even Ukraine that could severely hurt your people. You, the people could you, go- yeah. Because I want to say if you take a stance that's like opposed to, uh, Ukraine, you're definitely going to feel that fr- uh, pressure from the West, uh, America specifically. But yes. yeah, um, it's very. Uh, I mean, I think it's been estimated that 300 to 400, somewhere between 300 and 400 million people are hungry mm-hmm. because of the war in Ukraine. And, you know, the people of these countries and even people in the government recognize mm-hmm. that the war is wrong and that this is a brutal attack against a democratic, free nation. But they can't stand out against it because they they need the food. They need the economic relationship. And when you bring up South Africa, so like South Africa has been this beacon of freedom and democracy in sub-Saharan Africa. And it, it kind of shocked people um, when South Africa had this sort of like a lot of pro-Russian sentiment amongst its people. And, you know, I've, I've talked to a – um, an expert on South Africa, and he mentioned, uh, or I've heard about, that a lot of South Africans have this perception that, that Russia is anti-imperialist, mm. which is very ironic yeah. for the fact that Russia is expanding its borders and trying to annex yeah. another part of a neighboring Illegally country. annexed territory. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and they've invaded Georgia in 2008, and how many of these uh, post-Soviet states have parts of their country that are breaking off and are only solely supported by Russia. But still there's that sort of anti-imperialist mentality that many South Africans are attached to. And, you know, I, you know, as a uh, college student, I've taken a lot of courses in Africa. I'm I'm no means an expert, but I, you know, it's an area I have a lot of interest in and, you know, Asia is too uh, as well. And it's very interesting to see why, why are these countries not as vocal the, as a European or uh, countries yeah. in the Americas. Because, like you said earlier, I feel like the only African nation that's been that vocal has been probably Kenya and maybe yeah. Egypt. I mean, there are, yeah. So there are countries that have said things. So like I'm looking at some of the UN voting maps and 
you know, you have to recognize like a lot of countries in the Americas and Europe and Australia and the Pacific Islands, which these are, you know, the Western world, uh, as we say, and, and they are more in, um, economically and politically connected to America and Europe. So they aren't as hurt by, you know, if, the, if Russia and Ukraine were to stop sending them crops or other things they rely on, such as uh, Russian oil and gas, right. which uh, India, uh, biggest democracy yeah. in the world. Yeah, because let's let's talk about that uh, price cap that the U.S. Uh, is their new um, uh, version of a sanction on uh, Russia now. Um, with in regards to Russian gas, they have a uh, price cap embargo, and the whole reason, like I was talking earlier about Turkey closing the Bosphorus Strait to Russia, which you know they signed a treaty way back in the day uh not to do that is because now any ship that doesn't or any nation that doesn't meet the price cap can't go into it so basically this is the west's real big weapon to really hurt russia it's like it's forcing russia to lower the price of their gas if they want to get sales because like you said the ruble in their economy of russia is bit pretty resilient and also um, now that they've done that and they, you know, Russia's forced to lower the cap, it's making it raise, uh, you know, prices in other countries like uh, India and China. So now even they're feeling the effects and we're, you know, slowly transitioning to Asia. But, you know, this. Yeah, because when we think about what what is the lifeblood for the Russian economy and the Russian war machine, yeah. it's India and China. You know, China is this major ally and yeah, partner of China. Point, because they and, lost Europe in that. Right. So, you know, so China won't explicitly state a stance on the war because it would hurt their own interest, but they still need the oil because they're not going to ask the U.S. for it, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. But then India is, you know, when it comes to aggression and policies towards China, the India, in, I mean, India has always uh, been a strong partner with the United States and our allies. But when it comes to Russia, we have to think of the historical context that during the Cold War, when India became an independent nation, the U.S. supported Pakistan, yeah. Russia, uh, India's rival, yeah. and, and India, India, and India was supported by the Soviet Union. So there's that historical tie where the Soviet Union and then Russia supplied Russian military supplies and aided India throughout its history. So there's that sort of relationship. And, you know, since the end of the Soviet Union, there's been a huge push by the United States to close um, deeper ties with, with India, which have been massively successful, especially in terms of maintaining democracy and a free and open Indo-Pacific. But it's been sort of halted with Russia where, yes, there is being the shift away from Russia in terms of, more engagements and operations and supplies being American now than Russian, but there's still that lasting impact. And I think we're seeing that with the war. And that's why India, this beacon of freedom and democracy can't, is not outright saying a stance in the war. Right. Cause you know, India against Russia. Yeah. Cause India picking a side is, I, I think it doesn't necessarily go against their interests per se. But it's kind of a, a thin line that they don't want to walk because, like you said, because of historical context and because of they need that Russian gas. Um, yeah, yeah, Asia is kind of like thrown up in the air. And, and I'm actually, you know, like I said, I'm very surprised. You know, Russia's losing its biggest ally, which is China, and uh, you know. And the thing is, is the Chinese-Russian so-called alliance or partnership we're seeing. It's pretty one-sided. Mm-hmm. You know, Russia is super. 
determined to deepen ties with China and ally with China against the U.S. and the free world. But China isn't as willing to. And because yeah. in reality, who's the one with the second largest economy in the world and a massive population and has the logistical capabilities to truly challenge the United States? China, not yeah. Russia. Yeah. I mean, there are, more pe- there are more people in Bangladesh than there are in Russia. Yeah. And, you know, Russia's economy is the 10th biggest in the world, I think, as of last estimates. Yeah. And it's far probably, smaller. Probably less now. I mean, yeah. It's, it's smaller, far smaller than China's and the United States. So it really can't compete. And there's not, it's not as much for Chinese interest to support Russia and deepen ties, but they still do because it's anything to counter American influence within their own backyard right. and the world. So you, the Ukraine conflict goes beyond Europe and it really is shaking the world and shows how geopolitics, it really shapes everything and how this war has so, sort of showed us what the state of geopolitics is in this post cold war world and yeah. how things have changed. Yeah. And all it's really showed me honestly is, uh, you know, Russia's, it just showed me that Russia is like continuously, struggling declining. no not even declining they're just struggling with the the whole end of the soviet union still yeah it's, it's a i think it's like a decline i mean soviet union was yeah. the second largest economy in the world major competitor you know the rival to the the united states yeah, a, a global superpower and now you know it's a it, no no not even that it's just like after they broke away russia was you know of course, they slumped a little bit, but with the rise of Putin, Russia was recovering. Russia's, like you said, it w- the economy was like the tenth in the world. Like it was, it was fine. But now, with the expansion of NATO, with the uh, most of their uh, ex-Soviet states breaking away and joining the West, it seems like Russia is in some desperate attempt trying to clinch on. You know, Vladimir Putin himself said that the the breakup of the Soviet Union was like the worst tragedy ever for russia so to clinch that former glory yeah you know and and i think you know i've heard i would argue and i've talked to historians the soviet union was as likely to think of it it was never truly on par or better than the u.s on many aspects during the cold war yeah yeah sure for maybe during much of the space race and in terms of certain innovations and technologies but the United States has had the largest economy in the world since 1871. Mm-hmm. Well, one of them, you know. No, the. It has been the number one largest economy in the world since 1871. So, Over 150 years. Really? I, th- I thought Britain still had the largest economy until like the end of the war. First well, maybe war. it's how you divide Britain. Because the, maybe their I colonies. Mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think their colonies earned them more money. Because they were still the Well, you got to remember, I mean, pre-World War, you know, up until like the 60s. We were the, we were the yeah, factory of the world. We yeah, were know, the, yeah, our two, great yeah. arsenal democracy. Yeah, World War II is a definite, but like I think America finally overtakes Britain in, uh, at the end of World War One, because I or during it, because I think by yeah, so it's been at least a hundred years. Yeah, but but I think you know I think by eighteen seventy one Britain was still just because like, I, I mean, the US. I would argue we're you know China is the new Soviet Union to the United States and oh oh definitely and, but but. Yeah. The difference with China and the Soviet Union is that China, we were talking about this earlier before we even started the podcast, but uh, China in their lack of allies. Um, exactly. The Soviet Union at least had 
yeah. China before the Sino-Soviet split. They had Albania. They had the Eastern Bloc. They had their own uh, Soviet republics. Warsaw Pact. Yeah. Uh, they had their own um, republics in the Soviet Union. And then, of course, they had c- communists abroad, like Cuba, um, and, and Castro. And, I mean, uh, yeah, China doesn't have Russia and China lack concrete allies and, and major partners across the world. The ones they do have, most of them are small authoritarian regimes that don't have much influence or power. Whereas the United States... Roughly one in four countries are obligated to def- – the U.S. is obligated to defend and the U.S. is – and they're obligated to defend us. 52 countries in the world, uh, not including Taiwan, which is a little iffy. Yeah. Uh, practically every major country and practically most countries in the Americas, Europe, um, Australia, the Pacific Islands, uh, the, you know, the countries that border the Pacific Ocean along East Asia, Southeast Asia. I mean these are major strategic locations and partners that are crucial to countering and and maintaining influence in a region. And I think that is crucial to consider, especially with, with China, but also with the current war in Ukraine. Yeah, definitely. Um, It's just, um, we, we here at the King's Court podcast, we send our condolences out to the people fighting in Ukraine right now. Um, It's just a horrible time. Um, I, I did. I honestly didn't think this could happen. I, I don't think anyone did. Yeah. I think everyone woke up that when we woke up and heard that story. You know, the whole world was just in shock. Yeah, and, and with the war about to turn a year old, at least the one good thing we can say is that the Ukrainians, the resilience, they are. You know, it's, the war is not over by any means, but hopefully, these tanks and you know them getting this new equipment that just passed and went through um, will help them in their fight. Um, I wonder what they'll call this in history, like the Ukrainian War of Independence or something. <laughs> or the yeah. Russo. I've heard it's called the uh, Russo-Ukrainian War. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Or, or it's just the bravery of their president, a former comedian, yeah. Uh, turned... Yeah, turned hero overnight. Global hero. Turned night. Uh, truly fascinating. Like, all my Twitter feed is just... Full of Zelensky. Just an amazing so, man and truly a, yeah. a person that we remembered in history books for his bravery and yeah. and I think, uh, uh, cunning leadership. Yeah, I think Russia really miscalculated with this. I, 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 yeah. yeah, that's become very obvious almost a year. But, I mean, it's been almost a year of death and destruction and millions of refugees and, and hundreds of thousands of deaths. And just the complete destruction yeah. of many parts of Ukraine. Yeah, my pro- my professor, um, Professor Polly, uh, he uh, he studies Ukraine, and mm-hmm. um, famously, uh, he has a book out right now, guys. Um, and he speaks Ukrainian. And one thing that he pointed out to us is like, um, with with the whole regards to the Russian war, it's shaping the way. Ukrainians not only look at their own history, but look at Russia in, in, a, in a real negative way. Like, I want to emphasize how Vladimir Putin really thought that walking into this country, he believed that the Ukrainians would join him and switch to his side. He thought it would, you know, the sentiment. He honestly believed, like I said earlier, that Ukraine and Russia like, are the same people. He thought it was going to be like Crimea, because when Putin invaded yeah. Crimea in 2014, there was a resistance, but it wasn't. Major, yeah, it, and it, it was pretty. Like in Crimea, was quickly annexed by yeah, Russia. Because, yeah, because most of those 
uh, people because of Sevastopol, the Russian port, most of those were Russian speakers. Um, and even now in Ukraine, I'm not going to say they're a hundred percent against Russia. There are some Ukrainian families still there that uh, believe uh, that Russia is doing the right thing. It's 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 a, it's a little weird situation. Um, but for the most part, like now, um, statues uh, for the Second World War in Ukraine, they're using it to like signify Russia now. Um, there's a famous statue outside Kiev now that they're like um, that uh, I forgot the name of the statue, but it was a symbol of uh, freedom of uh, when they drove the Nazis out of Ukraine. And now they like putting pictures of Putin's head on the statue and like that he's, you know, this whole idea of Ukraine and Russia being like comrades, I think is like now forever destroyed. Like, well, yeah, it's like it's, it's kind of pre pre full out invasion, you know, Ukraine, like Moldova, Bosnia, and, and Serbia, pretty split on whether they're in the pro-Russia or pro-European camp. Um, but since the war, um, the number of Russians, I mean, sorry, the number of Ukrainians shifting from speaking Ukrainian, uh, Russian primarily to Ukrainian has increased. More people are speaking Ukrainian. Uh, support to join, for Ru- Ukraine to join NATO and the European Skyrim. Union, and I mean, just went up ex- exponentially. I mean, most most Ukrainians did not want to join NATO prior to the war yeah. because they didn't want to they, antagonize they want, Russia. Yeah, they just wanted to enjoy the, they, join the EU. They did not want to antagonize Russia. They just wanted to join the European Union. But because of this war, they recognized that this security is so important, and, rec- and recognizing NATO's value, value, and, and deep support of their sovereignty is making them reconsider that. And it's really shot Putin in the foot because he's getting the opposite of what he wanted, not exactly. only in Ukraine, right. but in Europe and the wider world. Yeah. The world will not look at Russia as this major military and super powerful country as it has been seen historically, but rather a shell of its former past. Yeah. And I think that's shell of its past. Yeah. And, and my question to you is, is that a good or a bad thing? <laughs> is that a good or a bad thing? Well, Russia, the Russian, let me stress, the Russian remember, government. Yeah, because Russia, you know, just for context here, people, Russia is the fifth member of the UN Security Council. So for them to be embarrassed this badly and, you and, know, and seen like this, like, is that a good or a bad thing? The Russian government has an extremely poor opinion. The, the, the citizens of countries across the world, majority have a very poor opinion of Russia. Very few countries have a majority of their population supporting Russia or having a positive view of it. Uh, most countries don't. And, you know, there is that historic legacy with the Soviet Union or their news of their authoritarianism and, and Putin's crackdowns. But hopefully there's a future when Russia is free and Russia is democratic. Yeah. And the people of Russia can determine their own destiny. And not be worried that if they say something wrong, that they'll be thrown in prison or killed. Yeah, these 15-year sentences are no joke, man. That's what I heard they didn't like. God damn. They're also, I've heard that uh, Putin brought back a Soviet policy. Oh, no. Where Soviet psychologists would argue that certain civilians that that had... uh, anti-Soviet, anti-Russian sentiments and opinions, 
that they were of a mental delusion or illness okay. so that they could be put into psychiatric facilities uh, for a certain amount of time. And granted, the back then, the Soviet Union was the only country that had this sort of policy. Yeah. Like, well, the okay. fact that Putin has brought it back is just draconian. And there's yeah. lots of things that I've, or the Wagner group. Mm-hmm. Oh, a four hired military death squad that brutally yeah. murders any yeah. of its members that, that go to the other side and surrender. And then, and then people are saying like the, mass war crimes across the entire world and are the secret hidden force for Russia's government is just very yeah. scary. And, and, and people are saying horrible. like the Russian police now are like jailing people like the KGB. Yeah. yeah I mean, the mass protests across Russia and the sign of, you know, I mean, these Russians, people are literally in danger to even say anything. It's Putin. Another, nonetheless, marching through the streets of St. Petersburg or, or Moscow or wherever they live and their risk of being in prison, their lives ruined, being murdered. But they have the bravery to stand against tyranny and to stand against his regime and the authoritarianism. And there's, there's a lot of res- respect to be had there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this war severely hurt Ukraine, uh, Ukrainians, but Russians also are being uh, negatively affected by the war uh, and, and ones that don't support it. Uh, I'd like to stress. It's just, man. And the last, last thing I want to address is the U S response. Um, I, like how, do you, how do you think Biden has handled the situation? I, honestly, I'm very, very, um, happy with the response the U.S. has made. Yeah, I think I was honestly expecting the U.S. to not support Ukraine in the way that it needed to. Yeah, no, I, I knew I knew the U.S. was going to support. It was just uh, what I was saying in the beginning. Like, I told my friends and stuff when they were coming to me about it. Like, I just knew that this wasn't going to turn into like a war between the U.S. and Russia oh, yeah. because of the, you know, non-NATO thing. I knew the U.S. was going to try to stay out as hands off as possible, and even just recently with the whole sending tanks and stuff. Like the only reason the U.S. is sending their own their uh, Abrams tanks over is because of the fact that they wanted uh, Germany to, because they knew Germany would follow suit. So of course, uh, yeah. the U.S. has to be that leader. But I think Biden has it towed the line um, very well. I think and it's a, it's been a for the large part a bipartisan effort. Yeah, and how often are there bipartisan efforts? Yeah, in modern American oh, politics, God. I mean, it's yeah, just good, it's refreshing to yeah, see. Yeah, good luck on getting Congress to ever decide on. Yeah, anything this solidarity else. and sort of uh, working together to support the Ukrainian people and to defend their sovereignty is very reassuring for the future yeah. of American politics. And I'd like, I hope this enthusiasm and collaboration can be for other global conflicts and. Uh, and authoritarian regimes that uh, we could help and um, and help people across the world with achieving democracy and uh, their own destinies. But uh, I think Biden and uh, his administration, along with Congress, have done an excellent job with sending financial, military, and humanitarian resources. And have exhausted every outlet of support yeah. besides putting troops on the ground. Because of the fact that if that were to happen, yeah, Russia would, would launch a war against NATO, yeah. and that would be devastating for the entire world. Exactly. And, but there is one critique of the administration, though, that I will uh, ask your opinion on. What is it like? How do you feel about this idea that 
United States is like turning Ukraine into one of our biggest debtors. Because <laughs> well, that question does have to be asked. Like, I'm sure we're probably going to want this money back. Like, you know, this, this is my taxpaying money here we're talking about. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there is going to be probably a significant debt accrued by Ukraine from Europe, Europe the U.S., Canada, and uh, other countries. But in the long term, I'm sure – I mean, I know the European Union has pledged to rebuild Ukraine. And, you know – to rebuild their economy, and I, I'm 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 sure that these debt repayments will be fair and long term, and take into account the total destruction of Ukraine's entire society and economy. But you know, may, hopefully, it's sort of what we saw after World War II when the Marshall Plan rebuilt Europe. Yeah, and uh, a key note about that was that, uh, but this is a totally different situation. Germany wasn't required to pay any reparations at all. So you you you're saying that maybe Russia should pay? No, no. I mean, I, I don't know, but that, that's a good question. Like, I don't know how Russia is going to pay for it, but I'm saying like oh, they would they if they will not pay for yeah, it. Yeah, they, but I, but I'm saying like <laughs> Ukraine, like are, you know, it's Ukraine. I'm saying is different than Germany. Like we didn't make Germany pay reparations. Uh, yeah, because Ukraine's not the the villain. Yeah, but like the, you know, yeah. I I mean, that is something to consider, but I mean, people say that, you know, 50, 60 billion dollars, whatever it is that we've sent to Ukraine, that seems it is a lot of money. I'm not denying that, but compared to other things that the U.S. Oh, government yeah. finances, uh, uh, yeah. well, it's really not as much as you I, think. That, that's my big point. Like, this, we, we could, that's a whole nother I mean, episode. hundreds and hundreds <laughs> and billions of dollars that we put towards, um, you know, things that we need like you know social security and Mm -hmm. uh our own defense uh medicare medicaid these policies that are very important to our country yeah they're hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars i mean our military budget is just under a trillion dollars pretty much or 900 billion so yeah 50 60 billion is a lot but you know you have to put it into perspective in the american perspective of the biggest economy in the world yeah it's not as much as it could be so That debt, I'm hoping the U.S. and Europe will be fair and recognize the situation post-war right? and that Ukraine doesn't feel pressured or forced. Let's not give them a China treatment, you know, how China does it. Yes, but, Chinese, but- <laughs> Chinese debt traps in yeah. Africa and other parts of the world. Yeah, very – let's not do that because yeah. that is just – wrong wrong but yeah but that's a, that's an episode for another day and yes, i just yeah, want to be great yeah yes. <laughs> i i just want to thank everyone for if you made it this far to the king's court podcast thank you for joining me in britain and we will catch you on the next episode thank you bye disagree with anything we just said be sure to leave a review and make sure to follow us on the king's court podcast instagram page and with that this court session is now over